Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from ANU's Australian Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. This month, Xi Jinping's gender problem. At the 19th Party Congress last year, he elaborated on the party's achievements for a seemingly endless 205 minutes. He was flanked by the Politburo Standing Committee, who, as has been the case since 1949, are all men. He mentioned gender just once. Yet the nation he governs is the most gender imbalanced in the world. Since the 1980s, a combination of sex-selective abortion and female infanticide has left China with 117 boys for every 100 girls. We're joined by two experts in the field. Later Hong Fincher, who's just published a book called Betraying Big Brother and is also the author of Leftover Women, and economist Jane Golly from the Australian National University. The Communist Party, which is currently fighting wars on corruption and poverty, is waging a less publicised war against feminists. This year, Chinese authorities celebrated International Women's Day by permanently closing Feminist Voices, the most prominent feminist account on Weibo, because it, quote, posted sensitive and illegal information. Three years earlier, they marked it by arresting five women who were planning to hand out stickers protesting sexual harassment on subways and buses. These women became known as the Feminist Five. Later, you've spent a lot of time with the Feminist Five. They were fairly obscure activists, but how did the party make them into a cause celebre? Yes, well, it's quite ironic because in 2015, when the authorities jailed these five young women who became known as the Feminist Five, the Chinese government really wanted to to squash the possibility of a large-scale feminist movement. But in fact, that move drastically backfired because it galvanized the feminist community inside China. And there was a huge global outcry as well, demanding the release of these five young women. Um, and so I, I believe that the the actual political movement just began to grow um, in numbers and in momentum ever since the, the Feminist Five were released. Um, Lady, could you tell us maybe a little bit more about the background of the Feminist Five? Who, who were they? Sure. Well, they were actually just representative of a, a larger number of feminist activists in different cities in China who were all planning to commemorate International Women's Day by um, handing out anti-sexual harassment stickers on subways and buses. Um, so the authorities ended up focusing on five young women and um, three of them were based in Beijing, one was based in Guangzhou, and another based in Hangzhou. And they each have really interesting backgrounds. Um, some of them had had personal experience with sexual abuse or domestic violence while growing up. But, but they were all very active in uh, working on what they called acts of performance art, highlighting women's rights issues, such as sexual violence or domestic violence or gender discrimination in the workplace or in university admissions. 
So, I mean, Jane, you've been looking at uh, women's status from another perspective, uh, doing research on women's economic status and gender parity when it comes to earning power. I mean, how much of a factor is gender when it comes to income inequality in China? Uh, Well, unfortunately, it seems to be the number one factor, according to some recent number crunching that I've done uh, with a couple of other women authors, one from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, Mei-Yen Wang, and another from Curtin University, Yi Xiaozhou. Uh, We basically uh, analyse the individual earnings of about 16,000 people across China and come up with just a bunch of simple factors that might determine that that gender is one, your urban or rural HUCO status is another, as is your father's occupation and your father's education levels, and they're a a good uh, sort of representation of of your socioeconomic status. And of all those uh, factors, gender is the number one contributor to individual earnings in China. Later, from the activism point of view, was that something the women were concerned about? Oh, certainly. I mean, the backdrop to this new emergence of feminist activism is just um, a really dramatic rise in all forms of gender inequality, from an exponentially increasing gender income gap, gender wealth gap in the form of property ownership, how women have been shut out of property ownership, which I wrote about in my first book, to rising gender discrimination um, in employment, where employers are increasingly asking women if they're already married, if they've already had one baby or now two babies. Um, all, all of this is just the backdrop for um, a rising number of young women, particularly in, in cities who are increasingly upset and outspoken about widespread sexism and misogyny. Lita, I guess when you when you look at this and from what Jane said and from what you've said, um, whether it's the gender pay gap, online crackdowns on the Me Too movement, or the continued ongoing surveillance and harassment of the Feminist Five, the signs for gender equality in China don't look great. Um, and yet your book is subtitled The Feminist Awakening in China. What's behind this awakening and how widespread do you think it is? Well, I I really believe that um, it's because of the increasing crackdown of the Chinese government on women's rights in general that there is is increasing pushback among particularly urban, young, educated women. A lot of it comes in response to this new aggressive push to get educated young women in particular to marry and have children before they turn 30. There's also a very strong propaganda push, pushing traditional gender norms, pushing the idea that women need to return to the home to to become dutiful wives and mothers. Um, And so in recent years, just more and more young women have become aware of the need to stand up for their rights. And this is what I broadly call a feminist awakening. And and I think it is very, very widespread, as you can see right now through the growing Me Too movement. And, And I really think that it touches on probably tens of millions of women, because we're talking about cities all across China, focusing originally on university campuses, but now it's spreading far beyond universities. 
I'm interested to hear you say that later because I was really looking forward to reading your book and I have read uh, read it from cover to cover uh, and I was wanting to feel the optimism of this broad sense of awakening but being an economist I was also looking at the numbers that you use throughout the book and you talked about dozens of activists in some cases and you know you focused a lot on the feminist five and the storytelling there was just outstanding but I couldn't really get a sense that there would be millions of women sort of waking up and, and joining the revolution uh, I felt ready to join your call to arms by the end of the book but I, I'd like to hear more about the rural uh, women in particular you know you talked about there are some, what is it, 610 million uh, Chinese women accounting for a fifth of the world's population. You know, if you could bring the rural women on board, wouldn't that be uh, fantastic? But I didn't really get a sense of that in the book. Yeah, well, I have to say that rural women so far um, have not really joined into this feminist movement. I mean, it began with urban educated women, women who've gone to college, but I have to say that it spread beyond that urban, more middle-class elite um, into the working classes as well. Not so much into rural areas, but it's definitely overlapped with the labor rights movement, where you see increasing numbers of women on the forefront of labor unrest in China. Um, and and most recently, you you've seen more feminist activists who went to elite universities getting involved in unionizing workers. Um, and so right now we have a couple of very prominent Me Too or feminist activists who are still in detention now because of their activism on behalf of factory workers um, with a, a recent police raid about uh, less than two months ago in Shenzhen. And so um, that this is one of the things that is perceived as a real threat by the Communist Party is that, you know, a, a women's rights movement is not just growing momentum among um, the growing middle class, um, but it's also overlapping into working class women, but not just women. It's crossing over into, you know, the rights of workers in general, including men and the LGBTQ rights movement. Um, but it's certainly true that rural women have not been included. They haven't been reached as much. But I have to say that if you look at China's revolutionary history, the, the, re the revolutions began with the intellectuals. It began in many cases on university campuses and then spread out to include more of the working class. And then, you know, with the communist revolution, of course, um, they ended up targeting um, farmers and peasants. Well, I think there's definitely fertile ground in the countryside from, from what I've seen in my fieldwork. I mean, one of the most alarming statistics is the rate of female suicide um, amongst rural Chinese women. It's, it's, I think China's one of the few countries in the world where uh, women kill themselves at a rate far greater than that of men. But I guess a lot of this comes back to the Chinese state's obsession with economic stability what extent later do you feel that um, a sense of economic grievance plays into the state's decision to clamp down so hard on Me Too or any form of feminist uprising? Well, I think it's really critical because we're seeing this um, increasing crackdown on feminism and on civil society very broadly. 
just at the time when China's breakneck economic growth of the last few decades has really slowed. So I think that the Chinese Communist Party used um, these, you know, economic miracle growth rates to co-opt the population politically ever since 1989 and the Tiananmen Massacre. But, but it, now it, it really needs to turn to other means um, to hold on to its political legitimacy and because people people are no longer seeing their living standards increase. You can see that the grievances are coming out across all sectors of the population actually. but but this this new um, uprising of women in particular, young women and and urban women in particular is, is really striking and new. Jane, I was going to ask when it comes to the breaking down those numbers, you've looked at income disparities over time. I mean, what are we seeing in the Xi Jinping era? Are, is the income disparity between men and women, is it is it shrinking or is it increasing? It's increasing. So economists have a, a tendency to put a lot of faith in the market and a, a whole bunch of economists from the beginning of the reform period started to look at gender inequality, I mean, among other inequalities, and they expected that it would fall across time because it doesn't make sense to discriminate against women in in the marketplace, just like it doesn't make sense really to d- discriminate against anyone. Uh, but instead of observing a fall in, in that gender discrimination or the wage gap that can't be explained by any other factors like the occupations that you choose or the education that you have, uh, they saw that discrimination rising. And and that was happening in both rural and urban China. Uh, A whole bunch of other factors related to the market reforms have made gender inequality worse as well uh, in perverse ways. You know, you open up to the rest of the world and what we see is China concentrating on unskilled labour-intensive manufacturing and that finances and channels their growth through the decades. Uh, But what you see is women concentrating in those sectors and men being more likely to join the joint joint ventures and the foreign invested firms as well. If you look at official statistics, the gender income gap really noticeably increased between 1990 and 2010. And so I don't have the exact figures, but but it's quite a dramatic increase. And these are coming from the official government statistics, which we already know are not that reliable. Um, but another notable um, statistic is the falling female labor force participation rate. And that's even that's falling quite dramatically since the 1990s, even in relation to, to men, because men's labor force participation is also falling. What I find to be um, really interesting and alarming is that the Chinese government is not seeing the um, participation of working women uh, in the workforce as as being an important part of China's future. It's actually doing the opposite. And I think that this is related to the Communist Party's belief that fundamentally the most important thing is that they have to stay in power. And the male-dominated Communist Party has decided that one of the keys is to push women um, not into participating more in in, um, economic growth, but to push them into having babies and to push Mm -hmm. 
these very traditional gender norms. But so far, there's no sign that that is working because more and more young women are rejecting that pressure. It's interesting you, you raised that question because one thing I really uh, enjoyed in your book, and it's sort of a carryover from your last book, uh, is looking at the activities of the All-China Women's Federation. In the Xi Jinping era, they've kicked off a, a most beautiful family campaign to, quote, cultivate people's core socialist values. And the Women's Federation has even given its blessing to colleges that teach women how to sit, stand and serve the tea. Is the position of women going backwards under Xi Jinping or is the Women's Federation having no impact? Uh, well, I mean, I've written quite a lot uh, about the role of the All-China Women's Federation. And um, under his leadership, the aggressive push for women to become wives and mothers and have babies, to adopt so-called traditional Chinese values, serving men and being docile and obedient, um, that, that that push has become much more aggressive under Xi Jinping. But it was there even before him. And, and the All-China Women's Federation, since at least 2007, has been actually playing much more of a, a strong role in trying to to do mass matchmaking festivals, pushing women into marriage, you know, encouraging them to be pretty, not worry too much about being educated. And last year, a senior official at the Women's Federation warned against the use of so-called Western feminism, warning that feminism was being used as the tool of hostile foreign forces to interfere in China's management of women's affairs. And so all of this is, does not bode well for the future of women in China. Later, you, you mentioned the violence of the Xi Jinping era against women. I wondered if you could share with us some of the experiences of the Feminist Five, maybe to take one example from your, your book, um, of the treatment of these women by the state when they were arrested for what seemed to me to be a fairly minor uh, activity. One thing that was really striking to me was that four of the five women needed glasses. And the first thing that the security agents did when they detained these women was to confiscate their glasses, um, which was incredibly disorienting, particularly for, for one of the feminists who was basically blind without her glasses. And so actually the title of my book, Betraying Big Brother, comes from one of the Feminist Five's description of her being absolutely terrified because she was detained in the middle of winter. It was below freezing at night. And the, the agents confiscated her glasses so she couldn't see anything. They confiscated her snow boots, took her, her coat so she was freezing. And she was overcome by this sense of powerlessness but then she put her ear up against the wall of her cell and started to hear the voices of other feminists she had worked with. And then she started singing to them and they sang back to her. And then she described regaining her sense of defiance. And she used the term, she said that she discovered the joy of betraying Big Brother. And so that's where the, the title of my book comes from. Just to come back to this, the sort of new directions that we've seen China go in under Xi Jinping, 
when it comes to women in China, perhaps one of the most famous sayings was, you know, Chairman Mao saying women should hold up half the sky. And it seems that nowadays, you know, we have these sort of core socialist values being propagated, which really have a very different sense of the role of women. Jane, do you see that playing out, that women's expectations uh, are causing them to play a different role in society now than they would have in Chairman Mao's age? It just makes me wonder what half of the sky uh, the Chinese government thinks that these women should be holding up and also as you said what 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 half the women themselves want to and are now able to hold up uh, and it comes back to the point later was making earlier this question of you know China's economic growth is slowing the labor force is is slowing and contracting uh, so why wouldn't you want to engage women in productive employment that could support and sustain that economic growth into the longer term. But instead, what we see is a fairly widespread encouragement through the All China Women's Federation, but also you know, from the government from the very top down, encouraging women to stay at home instead. Uh, and again, I, I guess I'm more pessimistic than, than later on this, and my data analysis isn't, isn't, isn't really detailed, but just as an example, I was watching If You Are The One uh, through the year and I was calling that research for this chapter that I've written on on girl power. Uh, and in a, an episode that I just can't forget, the, there was a, a, the girl was standing there, she was the one girl with her light left on uh, and she was allowed to ask one, one question of the, of the male contestant before deciding whether she would go with him and if she liked the answer, she could. She thought about it and she said to him... Uh, when you, you when your wife has her first child, will it be okay? Will you be able to afford for her to stay at home and never work again? Of course, my heart sank. Uh, he stood there very nervously uh, and then looked back at her and said, I don't think I'll be able to afford that. I don't think I've ever seen a light go off so quickly on that show. You know, she that was the end. The man left alone and she waited, you know, presumably for the wealthier uh, man that would come along. And to me, that was symbolic of all the things that I'd been reading throughout this year, trying to get a sense of where the gender story was going in 2018. To me, that really typified my own experience of reading through the year, just how badly things are going uh, from a feminist perspective in China today. And there's another trend that I did some reporting on for NPR, we are returning, which is this kind of bride price idea for women, where men are now paying for the hand in marriage, often tens, if not hundreds of thousands of yuan in various places. And I think Communist Party has actually capped it in various places because it's got so high. But from a feminist perspective, it looks very much like women being treated as chattels. Um, later, what, have, did you come across this in your reporting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a few things to say about that, which is that, first of all, you know, shows like If You Were The One, all sorts of game shows or popular shows you see on TV, they're all heavily controlled by the propaganda department, and they're very heavily scripted. So the Chinese government, obviously, you know, it's, we're dealing with the, we're talking about the most powerful authoritarian regime in the world. And propaganda is a very important tool. And so they're very aggressively pushing sexism, sexist norms. They deliberately screen out contestants on these game shows. And 
And I know because I've talked to some of the contestants. Um, so on the one hand, you have feminist voices getting systematically wiped out and erased through intense uh, internet censorship. So, you know, for example, feminist voices, the most influential feminist social media account was banned. There was another, uh, a few months ago, a growingly influential website for factory women's rights was also banned. The reason they're being banned is because women are increasingly standing up and demanding their rights. And you see that with the Me Too movement as well. The obstacles facing these women are so enormous. I mean, they're censored, they're vilified online, they're interrogated by authorities at their university or at the police. Sometimes they're they're jailed. So I wanted to ask Jane a question coming on from that. Is it then the case now we're seeing this loosening of control on the number of children that you can have and even these kind of indications that a party's moving towards encouraging two children is it then the case that the party kind of sees the value of women more as baby bearing vessels to sort out a demographic crisis than as income generating members of the population I think that's definitely the way they're viewing it. And with the introduction of the two-child policy in 2016, they made it quite clear that they saw uh, relaxing the, the, the population policy as a way of ensuring that there were more girls born. They saw it as a solution or as a partial solution, at least, to the gender imbalances that the one-child policy had played a part in creating. Uh, and so it made sense for them also then to have more girls born in the next generation who would go on and become mothers in the generation after that. But I don't think it's that simple at all. I mean, once you've got relying on market forces, you might see that as bride prices go up, you would be more likely to want to have a girl uh, and also less likely to want to have a second boy because you wouldn't be able to afford the bride prices that you would then have to pay for your two sons in the future. But I think it's, you know, that's not quite how markets work in practice. And of course, um, women aren't a market good. Uh, I think, in fact, you might see uh, the two-child policy leading to a further deterioration in the gender imbalance uh, because the most likely people to have another child are those who have a girl already and still really want that boy. And they'll be prepared to pay whatever price comes as a consequence of that. But certainly clamping down on the bride price alone is not going to be a solution to that problem. Later, I wanted to ask you, I mean, so Chinese women are being kind of bombarded by these different messages from the All China Women's Federation, but also these new policies aimed at getting them to find someone quickly, get married, have lots of children. But is it working? Well, no, I, I mean, it's not working. You can see from the statistics um, where marriage rates are falling, um, quite substantially, and, and birth rates are falling. So, I mean, last year, in spite of the fact that China abolished its so-called one-child policy and then implemented a two-child policy starting in 2016, last year the birth rate still fell. And that is very alarming news for the Chinese government, which sees, you know, this as a huge demographic crisis with the aging of the population and the shrinking of the workforce. And so, I mean, all of this just adds to the incredible pressure on young Han Chinese women in particular 
to have more babies. And, and I believe that we're going to see less incentives and we may very well see more coercive measures. And that's something certainly to worry about. But another thing I want to point out is that population planning is, you know, it's not just about increasing the number of babies at large. Because if you look at Xinjiang, where they are, of course, interning, you know, around a million Uyghur Muslims, the birth policy is the complete opposite, where, where um, the Communist Party is trying to discourage Uyghur Muslim women from having babies. And, and in Xinjiang, the propaganda is all about too many births, that so this is destabilizing. So it's, it's also about the so-called quality of the population, the kind of population that the Chinese government is trying to produce that it sees as important for the future. I guess I just wanted to add to that, you know, it, it really points to such a huge contradiction in the in the party's policies because they're trying to encourage the most well-educated urban elite women to, to stay at home and have more babies uh, in order to increase the quality of the population down the track. But if you think about the working age population at the moment, those are the women who also have the biggest possibility to contribute to the high quality sort of productivity of the economy today. Uh, and so why they'd be thinking that that was a good idea to keep them at home doing nothing, uh, you know, and possibly looking after the, their elderly parents and uh, in-laws just seems like a really odd decision to make. And particularly from a party that has long maintained its legitimacy through economic growth. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I'm wondering, is it is this now something that we're kind of seeing enshrined in the core socialist values, these kind of more Confucian roles for women? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see that because you have a real resurgence of Confucianism in, in the Communist Party propaganda. You know, there are these, there's a new school teaching the, the new era woman of the Xi Jinping era where she's just knows how to apply makeup and behave well and sit properly. <laughs> I mean, and it just does, it doesn't make sense economically, which is why I believe this isn't just about, it's not just about maintaining economic growth. This is about a dealing with, with existential threats to the future of communist rule. I mean, the Communist Party is absolutely paranoid um, about losing its grip on power and, and it studies, you know, the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union and across Eastern Europe. And one of the things I write about in my book is patriarchal authoritarianism. And, and you can look back to Xi Jinping's first speech as, as General Secretary of the Communist Party in January of 2013 when he said, he pointed to the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union and he said, well, nobody was man enough to stand up to, to the collapse of the Soviet Communist Party. But he's suggesting that he, Xi Jinping, is the man. He's a hyper-masculine man who's going to be strong enough to eliminate all of these different threats to the Communist Party in China, which has now outlasted the Soviet Communist Party. But I think that this helps explain what cannot be explained economically, because it doesn't make sense to keep talented women out of the workforce. That makes no economic sense. And this is where it comes down to 
basically ensuring the political survival of the Communist Party. That they that these male leaders have decided that you know what it's okay if economic growth slows somewhat, but we have to stay in power. I think maybe we should um, remind ourselves of some of the propaganda produced early in Xi Jinping's reign. My favourite one, and we have a clip, uh, was of um, Xi Jinping in his Xi Dada days, or the very final Xi Dada days. We'll, uh, we'll play that now. This video features Xi Jinping inspecting tanks, fighter jets, and lots of large missiles. It urges the women of China, if you want to marry, marry someone like Xi Dada, who is decisive in action and serious in his work. He's a man full of heroism and unyielding spirit. Later, what purpose does this portrayal of Xi as the ultimate paternalistic figure serve? So, so on the one hand, the Communist Party is pushing these extremely traditional, feminine, supposedly womanly virtues. On the other hand, they're presenting Xi Jinping as the ultimate strong man. He is a man who can command the troops. He can protect China. Um, he's going to rule over all of these male-dominated families. When you have you know, all harmonious families headed by this benevolent paternalistic patriarch, that means that the country is stable. And and one of the things that they say um, in Xinhua News last year, I was looking at some of their articles talk about family as a a big family, the guozia, which is which means nation state, but then they emphasize the word xia for family saying that it's not just the big nation state, it's also about little families. So all little families have to be harmonious. Everybody has to play their proper role. And so that has been identified by the Communist Party as something that's really important for political stability. So looking back to 1995, when the Women's Conference was in Beijing, and actually, I was strangely an official member of the British delegation to the Women's Conference. And I just actually, when I look back from then to now, I don't feel that that much has changed in the years since. I actually don't feel that women's social status has improved that much since then. And it really makes me wonder what has happened in all those years. Let's make that a global point, because if you look across the world during that period, and it's the time that we've all grown up in, I don't think things have really gotten any better, uh, for example, in Australia either. Uh, in fact, you could think that they've gotten worse. And there are some numbers to suggest that the gender gap in earnings, for example, has deteriorated in Australia in the last 10 years. Uh, there are an increasing number of Australian women who might choose to stay at home and look after their two or three children. So. Uh, I'm going to join with later here and, you know, suggesting this is not just a, a call to arms on the Chinese story. It's a global awakening that is still very much needed. Uh, later, Jane, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. 
like us on Facebook and don't forget to rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Our background research is by Julia Bergen. Our music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.